Um, <clears throat> yeah, so good morning. Um, if you're a guest here today for the first time or the fifth time, thanks for being here. Um, my name's Austin. Our passage this morning is on Luke 18, verses 1 through 8, which is known as the parable of the persistent widow. Uh, but we're also going to go through other places of scripture that, together this morning. Um, and I invite you to follow along with me in your Bible. Um, feel free to grab one from the back or up here um, if you need one. Um, you can even take it home with you if you like. Um, just as a heads up, this morning, um, today's session is going to involve some breakout groups. So um, that'll be where I'll give you some time to form small groups and talk through some discussion points together. So just be ready for that. Um, may the Lord bless our time together this morning. So I have a question for you. How many of us are familiar with or can relate to the phrase, life's not fair? Uh, that's one my mother repeated to me many times growing up and one I bet many of us here have heard as well. Do you ever groan thinking about price tags on Seattle homes, on Kashi cereal boxes, or at the gas station? Does it grind your gears thinking about the excrement the geese casually and carelessly leave all over our walkways and grass at Green Lake, on the Burke-Gilman Trail, and anywhere else close to water? Do you ever find yourself shaking your fist up at the heavens when your vacuum sucks at sucking? <laughs> what about when you get to the bus stop panting and heart pumping after sprinting three blocks while hauling your 25-pound carry-on in your arms only to see your bus indifferently close its doors and just roll away? Three words, folks. Life's not fair. As much as we can find things such as these annoying, we know greater injustices exist. There are newborns who get abandoned by their parents, after all. And there are children who are beaten by their parents until they become teenagers and finally run away. Have you watched or known of someone who has spiraled downward as they turn to things like the bottle, the needle, sex, or money to cope with pain in their life? Did you know the story of many women like those who walk Aurora involves them being targeted by people looking for the young and vulnerable running away from tumultuous homes because they know their frailty could be exploited? Do you know of someone who led a normal life but then was changed forever in an instant after their car was rammed by a bus and they wake up paralyzed in the hospital? Three words, folks. Life's not fair. But there is good news. God does not just leave it at that. Today's passage is in Luke 18 which serves as a reminder of God's faithfulness 
Before we jump in, let's pray. Say aloud the words of the Lord's Prayer with me if you like. They'll be on the screens. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Okay, let's break out our Bibles and get to our passage. Today's passage is in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Let me go ahead and read it. And he, being Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The first verse of this passage tells us Jesus' heart in sharing this parable. He wants his disciples to always pray and never lose hope. In this parable, Jesus gives a positive report of a woman who is persistent in how she engages a human judge for justice. This man is not righteous by any means, but because of his persistence, of her persistence, he eventually grants her the justice for which she petitions. The point is that the Lord, on the other hand, who is righteous and loving, is different. Therefore, if an unrighteous judge can be annoyed into delivering justice, we can, of course, trust that the Lord will listen to his own and bring them justice speedily when they cry out to him. Consider a parallel passage in Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 13, which comes directly after Luke's recording of the Lord's Prayer, with which we just opened our session this morning. Let me read it for you. And he, being Jesus, said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. 
For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Here again, we see the heart of the Father illustrated as one that holds a vastly deeper love and care for his kids than any human here on earth could ever possibly contain. He's trustworthy. This is an incredible truth. And yet, it is a consistent pattern across the span of history that we human carry faulty faiths. Whether it was Peter sinking in the waves, or the Israelites cowering before the Philistine giant Goliath, or Moses acting out of imperfect, or, or Moses questioning how he could be the one to lead God's people out of Egypt, all of these are results of people acting out of imperfect faiths in God who is, in who God is, and what he does for his people. <clears throat> and you know, I too am just another human like them who operates from an imperfect faith. I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we'll admit we're all in this boat. So why is this? Why is it that people's faiths falter? I believe our passage this morning gets at one reason. The injustice we see in our broken world can be discouraging. Let's dig into this some more amidst small groups. This is where I'm gonna give you some time to discuss amongst yourselves. Break into groups of four to five and discuss this topic together. There will be some questions you can follow up on the screens. And I'll signal for your attention again when time is up and we'll continue forward from there. You've got seven minutes. Ready, go. Thirty seconds left. Thirty seconds. Okay, <clears throat> time is up. From the hubbub I've been hearing in the last seven minutes, I'm guessing there was a lot of really good discussion. Now let's redirect our attention and back up front again. Thanks for giving me your attention. <clears throat> so injustice is a common experience in our world that can undermine hope and faith. 
This is a process often wrapped up in stories that involve addiction, abuse, neglect, depression, and the like. I've seen it happen. In these stories, men and women close off their hearts to the goodness of God, and the pain and the darkness of their circumstances crowd out his words. Stories of disillusionment don't have to involve things like addiction and neglect and depression, but in the face of the hurt and injustice they see and experience, it can be the case that people lose hope and stop praying. This is where I want to highlight the story of Job, a righteous man who was declared blameless and upright in God's sight, and a man who feared God and turned away from evil. Despite this, the Lord allowed Satan to take all his livestock, all his servants, and all his children from him in raids, fire, and wind. It was a catastrophe. And it didn't stop there. Verses 7 through 8 of Job chapter 2 tell us he was then afflicted with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and that he was left scraping himself with a piece of broken pottery while he sat in ashes. Imagine the sorrow and grief this man must have felt as he lost everything, seemingly for no reason. Let me read a portion of Job's lament over the day of his birth, recorded in chapter 3. I'll start in verse 20. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not? And dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. The rest of the book of Job is a story of his processing of the tragedy that has fallen upon him. Part of that involves his wife giving him the terrible advice to curse God and die, and his friends wrongfully blaming him for his hardship. What a terrible experience. In the end, Job never got a straight answer from God as to why he suffered. Though God did, in his timing, engage Job quite directly and personally. In that encounter, God reminded Job of his limited human capacities, that God's ways are higher than his, and here it is again, that God is trustworthy. Job accepted this and was ultimately restored to a state where he gained more than he'd lost. 
the end of his story in chapter 42 details that the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. That the Lord restored to him his family and his health. And that Job died an old man full of years. It's worth noting that throughout the entirety of Job's story, he never lost his faith. When we fast forward in time to, for example, the streets of Seattle today, it's unfortunately the case that tragedies continue. Did you know that trauma and broken family relationships are often underneath the concerning symptoms of mental illness and addiction we often spend much of our time discussing in conversations around homelessness. It's true. In the last 10 years, I've spoken with hundreds of neighbors on the street. I've learned stories. And I haven't learned of one where there was a good family situation. And I've met people who have been abused, neglected, in war, in horrible accidents, and witnesses to these kinds of things. Trauma and broken relationships weigh on a person and can lead them to stop praying and lose hope. But God is still at work. I want to show you a video showcasing the story of James, a fellow brother in Christ. The difficult circumstances James shares about his life sound to me like ones that could easily overwhelm a person's faith in a loving and just God. However, God heard his cry, gave him faith, and restored his spirit. Take a look. I grew up in a very abusive home. We bounced around foster homes almost my whole life until I turned 15, and that's when I emancipated myself. I have to say, growing up in a family that was completely criminal, I looked down on people who actually obeyed the law, and I just did whatever I wanted. So I was working at a restaurant but they weren't really giving me enough to survive. And one night, somebody offered me some methamphetamine, and I decided, you know, this is gonna help me concentrate, stay up, and work the two jobs I needed, and it didn't. I had that little bit, and I decided I want more and more, and I was spending every paycheck I had on it, living, you know, in the alleys, eating out of dumpsters. Then one day, I did a bad batch someone sold me, and I was convinced people were after me kill me. So I ran as far as I could away from them, across the highway, and got smashed by a UPS truck. And I remember being the worst pain I've ever been in. And I remember thinking I was going to die. And I remember thinking I was going to go to hell. So I rededicated my life to God when I was in the hospital. And two months went by as I actually spent time recovering. And I told him that I wanted to be 
clean. And they came up to me and said, actually, we have a Seattle Union Gospel Mission. But then I just had something weigh on my heart that I should go here. So I said, you know what? Let's go. When I first got here, I had breakfast. And as I looked around, all these people were sitting there enjoying themselves, talking. And at that moment, I knew that that's what I wanted to do, that I wanted to help people out. And I realized that a meal can change everything. And then I felt God pulling me because I heard about the CHIP program. So with the CHIP program is a shorthand for the Culinary Hospitality Internship Program. It's pretty much a two-year culinary degree that's packed into a year. I've learned a lot chef-wise, but I'd have to say the main thing that we learn here is how to deal with others, how to minister and focus on people, and how to spread the love of Jesus Christ, even through a simple, have a good day. Following your dreams or passions is going to take a lot of risk and a lot of hard work. But as for being able to follow my passions and dreams, I feel so grateful for it every day. I have never been happier than I am now. God is good, amen. And he's trustworthy. I have one more story to share, but first I want to remind you, we will have an Engaging Homelessness 101 training on December 10th, hosted by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission right here in our building. It's going to be downstairs after worship, and there is going to be food provided for those who register. If you have any interest in learning more about how you can be a part of what God is doing in the streets of Seattle, or even if you just like a free meal. <laughs> Make plans to attend. So th there are a couple of pictures that should be coming up on the screen that are of me from when I was about five years old. You can see they captured a moment when I was pulling my hair out at the dinner table. At the time, I was undergoing chemotherapy treatment for leukemia. As an infant, I was dedicated to the Lord when I was about four months old. Then, just a few years later, I spent my fourth birthday in the hospital as my cancer diagnosis was declared. To be honest, my memory of the time I spent battling leukemia is limited because it was when I was between four and seven years old. I've been told that before I was taken to the hospital, I had a fever lasting for a couple of days that baths could only bring down to 104 degrees. I remember clinging to my mother's side and holding her hand in the hospital visit after hospital visit, afraid. I remember going into the sleep doctor's office to lay down on a table as anesthesia put my body to sleep so chemotherapy drugs could be injected into my spine and cerebrospinal fluid. I remember taking pills that tasted disgusting, and they were only made palatable by wrapping cheese around them. Um, 
it might be hard to read the text that my mother wrote um, on these photos, but part of it reads, the medicine makes Austin bloated. And I'm sad as Austin's hair falls out. These were further side effects of chemotherapy. My mother was my rock during that time. And I remember being confused, seeing tears slide down her face in the nurse's office after she was told during a checkup that my white blood cell counts were low and I had to be quarantined out of concern for my safety. I'm sure many would look at what happened to me then as a child as an injustice. I know my mother prayed consistently for God to heal my body during that time. At this point, I'm 25 years into a life that is cancer-free. My hair grew back a long time ago, and I get frequent comments at the barbershop about how thick it is. I'm a little shorter than I would have been. I've had plenty of teeth issues, and there are other things I need to be mindful of because of the treatment. But I like to think these are just ways God's keeping me from being more proud and self-reliant than I already am. And also reminding me, he's God and I'm not. God is good. He hears our cries and he is merciful. So we've highlighted a few stories where God delivered people from calamity in a temporal sense. These kinds of stories are impressive testaments to God's power, his faithfulness, and his goodness. They can be inspiring. But you know what? The Lord delivers from cancers more serious than just the ones that ravage our bodies. He also delivers from cancers that eat away at our hope and lead us to stop praying and talking about the cancers of unbelief and sin. The Bible teaches that the world as we know it is not how it was meant to be. In the beginning, mankind dwelled with God in a beautiful place, unmarred by death or wrongdoing. It was very good. But there was a fall that changed all this, and now here we are in a broken world full of broken people who sin against God, others, and themselves. When our broken faiths view and experience all that is wrong in the world, some of our common, natural, fallen reactions are to believe God is weak, apathetic, or cruel, and to give up hoping in him. But here's the thing. God is the author of life. So those fallen beliefs and reactions in response to a broken world are themselves cancers of a sort. They eat away at our relationship with the author of life and thereby, thereby destroy the life in us. Look with me at Genesis, where it all started. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, God tells Adam, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now let's jump to chapter 3, verse 1, where the serpent deceives and injects unbelief into Eve. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the, to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Notice here how subtle the injection of unbelief from the serpent is. He attacks Eve's understanding of God's character by questioning his word and motivations. She ends up believing God is less than who he really is, and then she and Adam disobey him. If you read the rest of the chapter, you can observe how this unbelief propagates into further action that separates them from God. When he comes back and engages them with questions, they attempt to hide themselves and their sin out of fear of God, as if he is some abysmal punishment. However, a better understanding is that God is simply giving them an opportunity to confess and be cleansed of their cancer. 1 John 1.9 is one passage of many that supports this understanding of God as loving and forgiving by telling us if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Instead of confessing and finding restoration, Adam and Eve faced exile from the garden. They were separated from God and ultimately died. As observers, we can see how the cancerous, internalized unbelief and sinful rebellion could have been killed and destruction to a life-giving relationship stopped through a restored trust in God. Unfortunately, neither Adam nor Eve could make it happen. The Bible teaches that unbelief and sin metastasized there from them to the rest of mankind and continues to ail the world today. The Bible also teaches that despite mankind's rebellion, 
and necessary exile from Eden, God was still faithful to them because he had a plan to cleanse and restore them. That plan involved Jesus taking on flesh to become like us, walk the earth, and die on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that for our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Using the metaphorical language from earlier, God made Jesus the cancer and then dealt it a killing blow. And that's all well and good, but the real amazing part is that though the affliction was dealt a killing blow and Jesus' afflicted body died, Jesus didn't stay dead. Instead, Jesus rose again to new life, cancer-free, showing that the power of God, the great physician, is greater than what plagues mankind. And that is why Christians believe that if you've got Jesus in you, you've got hope for a similar reversal of unbelief and sin and its effects in your life. The scriptures teach that this reversal has already begun and will be complete after Jesus returns and burns away what reigns of the cancer. This is all part of core Christian teaching and likely familiar to many of us. We could readily expect it to be a part of any given Sunday, Bible study, or testimony. But it is worth pointing out it is particularly relevant to our discussion this morning because of how unbelief and sin grow so easily in circumstances where we feel the heavy weight of injustice. What is a sign that the fight for hope is still alive and well in these circumstances? Well, it's prayer. Why is this? Because a praying person is a person who is still going to God. I want us to go through an exercise together in our small groups again. Get into your groups, open up your Bibles to Psalm 13, and give it a read together. As you read it, take note of how the psalmist David earnestly wrestles with God about his felt experience and makes proclamations around God's trustworthiness. David was known as one of the giants of faith. Discuss with your group what hope God could give or has given you in discouraging times when you pray like this. I'll give you seven more minutes. Ready, go. All right, time's up. Let's refocus our attention up front again. There's just one more thing that I want to get at before I let you go and we transition to worship. Um, <clears throat> okay, so at this point, we've highlighted God's faithfulness to a few people in terrible circumstances. 
We've explained why injustice is a part of the world. We've gone through God's plan to address it. And we've discussed how hope can arise from honest and truthful prayer. Now, let's read about what it will be like after God delivers justice. The book of Revelation details what the end times will be like. It promises a reunion of heaven and earth, of God and man, and that the broken things we accept as common to the lives we lead now will pass away. Look with me at Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 through 5. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I can only imagine what it'll be like when those things we accept as common to the life we know, like pain, sorrow, mourning, and death, are done away with. Have you ever thought about what that could be like? It's a thought that can bring forth joy, peace, reassurance, security, and hope. And here's the thing. This new life comes about because of how God executes justice. If you were here last week, you'll recall the description of Jesus' second coming in Revelation chapter 19, where this King of kings and Lord of lords appears with eyes like fire on a white horse and then with justice proceeds to judge and make war. Verses 17 through 21 then describe in rather gory detail how the enemies of this faithful and true rider on the white horse are vanquished and done away with. You know what this says? It says that God is furious about the injustice in our world. It says he is not apathetic. He is not cruel. And he will deal with all that is wrong in our world. But there's more. Look at verses 6 through 8, which describe a different crowd than the one he vanquishes in 17 onward, one that is celebrating his return. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. What's the point of highlighting these verses? Well, it's because our passage in Luke 18 this morning ends with Jesus asking the sobering question of whether there will be faith on earth when he returns. And this passage here in Revelation says, yes. Take heart. 
That bride mentioned here in Revelation is God's ransomed people. This says there will be a remnant who, by God's grace, endure to the end, are purified, are adorned by righteous deeds fueled by faith, and see Jesus face to face. That's going to be quite a wonderful day. Did you know that the Lord is patient and has been withholding the judgment we just read about because he wants people to reach repentance? Before we close this morning, I want to read a passage out of 2 Peter 3 for us. Go with me, if you will, to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 18. And this is where we'll close. It says... But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The Lord does at times grant deliverance from leukemia, healing from addiction, and restoration of family and fortune. And it is wonderful to witness and experience the alleviation of these atrocities. But he offers a greater gift still, and that is the chance to be reunited with him in heaven. It is a gift available to any who trust him and obey him. In the world we live in now, there is no promise to what we'd like to call a fair life. Jesus himself tells us that in this world, we will have tribulation. But he also tells us to take heart, for he has overcome the world. God is good, he is faithful, and he promises to bring heaven on earth at a time no one can expect. That is something to get excited about. For all who have ears to hear what Jesus calls us to do in this parable of a persistent widow, let us not stop praying and let us not lose hope. Father in heaven, you are faithful. You are good. You are trustworthy. You never leave our sides, and you are a God of justice. You have a plan 
to make all things right in this world. That plan has been set in motion. Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven. We know that your kingdom is one of peace, security, joy, hope, love, faith. So we want these things, Lord. God, we pray that you give us our daily bread. Give us Jesus so that we can be empowered with hope and with faith. Purge us, God, of our unbelief. Purge us of our sin. Cleanse us, God. And Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for how we do not um, make the cut, for how we fall, we go astray, we lose hope, and we stop praying. And God, we also pray that we'd feel your forgiveness as we forgive those around us who commit atrocities and injustices. Guard Guard us against temptations to be disillusioned, to believe lies about who you are, and um, to be anxious, to lose hope. But instead, God, be with us and deliver us from the evil that we face. We give you the glory and the honor and the power forever and ever. Amen.